Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now my guest today is a Corkman, currently exiled in Geneva, but he spends a lot of his time in far-flung corners of the developing world. John Wayne is a Senior Emergency Shelter Officer with the UN High Commission for Refugees, and he is, like so much of the world right now, engaged in tackling the COVID-19 pandemic. And while we in Europe have seen our way of life impacted hugely in recent weeks and months, I think it's fair to say that things may end up an awful lot worse in the developing world. John, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Mick. I hope you're well. John, before we get into your work, as I said, your office is in Geneva. You're actually based across the border in France. How's the lockdown going there at the moment? That's right, Mick. Um, I tell people that I, I cycle from France to Geneva every day. It sounds like a long way, but it's just... Um, about seven kilometres over the border in France. Yeah, conditions here in France are pretty strict. We're in our eighth week of lockdown here. Um, all the schools are closed. Uh, social distancing is is um, well policed. Um, we're allowed out for walks every day and, and go to the supermarkets, but um, things are quite strict here still. Um, and the children are at home homeschooling. Uh, Sinead, my wife, is a nurse, so she's going into into Geneva to the school uh, on a daily basis to support there. So, um, yeah, it's uh, it's been a challenging eight weeks, but I think there's light at the end of the tunnel in that uh, next week we're going to start a phased return to the office. So that's that's looking positive from that perspective. But like here, all right, in that regard, John, you mentioned to me earlier yourself that... Um the scenario of uh, the, the going for a walk every day, that if you went out for a walk and you were beyond, is it, is it two or three kilometres, two kilometres here, that you could actually get fined in the spot? That's correct, Mick. There's a, a two kilometre radius that we're meant to adhere to. Um, and the French have an attestation system, a mobile phone app. So every time you go out, you're, you're to fill in this attestation in your mobile phone and you're to have it with you so you can present it to the gendarme if they stop you. Um and if you don't have that attestation on you, they 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 are dishing out fines. My God, yeah, it's a bit it's a, it's a bit different from what we have here, but um, I suppose the, the, there are some reasons to be thankful for a slightly more relaxed regime here. Yeah, I mean, on that regard, Mick, you might be able to blag your way out of it back home in Cork, but when your French is struggling a bit, it's a bit of a challenge this end. <laughs> I can well imagine. I can well imagine. John, um, in terms of your work and the developing world, um, I suppose without getting into too broad a brushstroke, but in in general, how are things there? Like we know, for example, the pandemic starts in China, it comes to Europe, it's gone to the North America. How are things in general in the likes of Africa and parts of Asia now? Well, Mick, um, you know, as, as, as we all know, I mean, uh, COVID-19 has reached every country. I think what we're... we're 3.7 million confirmed cases with 260,000 worldwide deaths. Uh, the numbers are staggering. Um, 
you know, they don't yet know if the peak of the disease has has hit the world's uh, poorest countries. I guess we'll know in the next three to six months. But looking at the current figures uh, for Africa um, earlier on, I mean, confirmed cases are up at 51,000 and deaths at 2,000. Now, when you look at the size of Africa and you refer that to to even our own cases in Ireland, where there's, what, 22,000 and and something like 1,300 deaths, it, it doesn't seem hugely high. But the issue is we really don't know the full extent of the numbers as testing regimes are possibly not as strict in some of the world's poorest countries. Yes, and uh, there's another issue too, John, which I think is very interesting, and that is the, the demographics in Africa are very different to either, for example, in South Asia or here. I've just seen one statistics, for example, and that is uh, take Japan, where 40% of people are over 55 and 28% are over 65. Now, in Europe, I don't think it would be as big in both of those, but it would still be relatively big. Yet in Uganda, the equivalent figures are 5% over 55 and 2% over 65. At the other end of the scale, in Japan, 13% of the population made up of children under 14. In Uganda, it's 48%. Now, those are hugely different demographics. And the question is, the, 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 the philosophy of the lockdown, which seems to have served us in the Western world pretty good in terms of stopping the spread of it, there are questions raised as to be whether or not that is the best way to go in parts of Africa when you take into account that they have a much younger demographic? No, I mean, that's a very interesting topic, Mick. And I mean, first and foremost, we, we have to say that, you know, COVID-19 is, is a public health emergency. And, and it really is down to the various countries' public health systems to deal with it. But when when you look at demographics and global demographics, I mean, uh, 25% of the world's population is between the age of 10 to 24. So that's 1.8 billion people are between the age of 10 to 24, and 90% of them are in um, the world's least developing countries. So you mentioned Uganda. Indeed, it's, it's almost the, the converse of what we have in, in some countries, such as Japan and other countries in, in Europe. And you know, demographics could be a lifeline to spare the worst effects of COVID-19 on some of the world's poorest countries. Yeah, and I suppose the other thing that I noted there about the the, the, the idea of doing a lockdown is that um, were you to do that in some of these poorest countries, there's an issue arises over access to food, basic stuff like that, if people are confined to their homes. I mean, absolutely, Mick. I mean, and, and we, we need to say from the start, there is there is no one size uh, fits all strategy for, for all countries. I mean, some countries are suited to a lockdown. Others are, are suited to more, um, you know, appropriate alternatives. Um, it really depends on the, you know, the health capacity, the e- economic capacity, um livelihood, uh, living conditions, socioeconomic conditions of the respective country. Um, But you have to think of it too, that in a lot of the high-risk developing countries, um, poverty is high, um, preventable disease rates are high, um, poor access to primary education, 
a lack of economic opportunities. Um, you know, half a, a billion youth are, are earning under $2 per day. And is a lockdown the best approach when uh, demographics might favour you and um, the adverse effects of your economy collapsing could be far more than, than the effects of trying to keep people quarantined and locked up? And presumably also in, in the public health area, you have a lot of um, diseases and conditions like malaria, measles and that kind of thing that are major problems in those countries, which again are something we don't have to face in the developed world. Yeah, sure. I mean, um, you know, poor countries, um, they, they need they need a lot more support. I mean, first and foremost, I mean, as richer countries, we, we need to look at, at supporting them with more systematic testing strategies. I mean, they more than likely don't exist in a lot of the uh, underdeveloped high-risk countries. Um, uh, public health authorities don't have access to information. These are areas where, where there is huge support necessary. Um, the, the capacity of, of developing countries to improve the ability of their health systems to cope with sudden uh, influx of sick people. These are, this is another key area where, where we need to provide support. And then back to that whole issue about, you know, lockdown or don't lockdown, it, it's income. I mean, we've got to do whatever we can to stop uh, economies in these countries completely crashing. And when you have a population who are surviving on a, a daily wage rate and um, quarantining, locking them down, prevents access to, to uh, uh, daily income, prevents access to um, uh, cash crops. Uh, we have to look at it uh, holistically and, and make a decision uh, whether, whether that is the best decision for that particular country. So, John, do you know of any projections in terms of what it's felt like in places like the UN that the, the impact could be in the likes of the, the poor areas of Africa, for instance? Well, I mean, I think as we, we, we said earlier, Mick, I mean, um, it's just at this stage very hard to predict. I mean, the, the confirmed uh, cases numbers are relatively low and it's, it's obviously down to a possible lack of testing and a lack of data coming through. It's, it's going to be the next, uh, you know, three to six months before we fully realise the effect of this disease on the world's poorest countries. Um, the uh, the need is still huge, needless to say. I mean, um, you look at the, you know, the, the the global humanitarian needs overview. That's a, you know, a collection of all the humanitarian needs globally. That's that's predicting that there's somewhere in the region of $32 billion required to support 117 million poor people in 57 countries. Now, the reason uh, recent uh, uh, global humanitarian response plan for COVID-19 uh, has just come out, and that's got a figure of somewhere around $2 billion, um, with an appeal figure of about $6.7 billion. So the experts are saying the needs are huge. Um, to, to support uh, less developed countries in, in the onslaught of COVID-19. Yeah, and another complicating factor, I suppose, John, and it's one that w would have applied in, in, in a certain way to China, but not so much most of the other countries that have been worse affected because they're all democracies. And that is that a number of these poorest countries, if not most of them, don't have democracy and therefore 
the 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 decisions taken and the direction taken by the rulers doesn't necessarily have the best interests of all the people at heart in in doing so. Yeah, I mean that that's always an issue. I mean uh, misappropriation of funds. I mean in our own case, um, uh, from a UNHCR perspective uh, and supporting the world's displaced people. I mean. Again, the figures are staggering. I mean, UNHCR statistics are showing that there's, you know, 71 million forcibly displaced people globally. Now, as countries lock down and borders lock up, um, ability for for displaced people to to access safe havens is 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 becoming harder and harder. Um, in our own uh, um, response plans, we we have a UNHCR has an appeal in for. $255 million. Um, and primarily, we're looking to support national governments, uh, support their, their, their health systems, their ministries of health, with WHO, the World Health Organization, support, and then provide additional tech- technical expertise as is necessary in order to try and deliver life-saving support, such as water, medical care, hygiene, um, and, and, and other um, health infrastructure uh, uh, expansion support uh, to be able to relieve some of the effects that um, uh, hosting countries are going to have uh, in, in support of, of displaced people. Yeah, when you, when you put it that way, John, the figures are staggering. I mean, 71 million people displaced. You're talking about a population that's greater than the size of the UK effectively people who are either displaced internally or living in camps in neighbouring countries, I presume, and places like that. It's a, I, I, I think that the size of it, we forget, particularly in this country, of what exactly um, is involved there. I mean, we, 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 we of course forget. I mean, and the numbers are staggering and huge. Um, and, you know, the solutions are, 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 are um, harder and harder to achieve as well. I mean, if you look at, uh, you know, our kind of durable solutions for displaced people, it's um, uh, return, it's access to third countries, it's um, integration into, into host countries. Now, the, with the lockdown of borders and with kind of global uh, policy, um, Placing in in third world countries is becoming harder and harder. So our emphasis really has to be on doing our best to support host countries to support with the burden. We we need to share the load that host countries are have in in accommodating these displaced people. And most people that are displaced are displaced over an adjoining border. They're not those that are traveling uh, through the Mediterranean route or, or up through the the Americas route. Most people who are displaced are displaced close to their own countries where they are escaping conflict uh, and other such atrocities. And the whole issue of displacement camps, I suppose, are, are, are settlements. Um, the idea of COVID-19 in, uh, in those places must be terrifying because social distancing, lockdown, anything, I'd imagine that's next to impossible in places like that. I mean, absolutely. I mean, what, what we're trying to do uh, from a, a shelter and settlement perspective is uh, one of the key areas we're looking at is density. Um, density at both household level and site level. And, and you said it yourself there. I mean, um, the vast majority of the uh, refugee camps and settlements um, do struggle from, from density. I mean, we, we work to standards and there's a standard called sphere standards. And that sets out a requirement of 45 square meters per person. But if you ever measured that out, it's not 
huge by any stretch of the imagination. So absolutely, the vast majority of these settlements do suffer from density issues. And uh, a big challenge for us is to try and address that density, both at the household level and the, the camp level. And you, you would be familiar, John, the nature of your work with a lot of the, the, the bigger settlements. And has there been any major outbreaks there so far that have, have caused um, serious concerns in, in, in your organisation? No, thank God, Mick, we haven't had any reports of major outbreaks in um, in large refugee settlements yet, which is which is really a relief for us. But we have scaled up significantly to to try and deliver on on our um, two hundred and fifty five million plan that we have in place. Um, now, from again the the purely technical shelter perspective, um, we we kind of have five ways that we can we can uh, support uh, to mitigate the spread of COVID nineteen. I mean, additional uh, humanitarian assistance, so distribution of simple simple household products that we take for granted back home don't exist in most of these places. Sleeping mats, blankets, um, plastic sheeting, jerry cans to carry water. Most of these settlements have. Limited water. I mean, the, the emergency standard of 20 litres per person per day is often not there. And now when you add on the extra demand that COVID-19, with, with all of the messaging around hand, hand washing, um, uh, brings forward, the need for clean, fresh water is, is higher and higher. So that's a, a huge priority. Um, the the um, inadequate shelter. I mean, you know, we... A man's home is his castle. I mean, in the vast majority of refugee settlements, we're, we're talking we're talking tents, we're talking plastic sheet shelters. We've developed a refugee housing unit, which which is um, a, a bespoke uh, housing unit that complies with minimum sphere standards. But these are very small, simple shelter solutions. Uh, in in numerous contexts, you've got uh, large families sharing. Uh, uh, one particular shelter. Now, again, the 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 aspect of cocooning, the aspect of of, of shielding people, is another area for concern. In a lot of these countries, um, the elderly people are protected by their family. Uh, the notion of cocooning them and putting them away from that support from family, close family, is just not going to fly. It's not going to happen in a number of these contexts. So, adequate shelter, improving shelter. Decongestion. I mean, as we said it, uh, a lot of these houses are very, very close together. They're very congested. It's, you know, next to impossible to enforce some of these social distancing regimes. Um, you know, one-way systems, um, not having groups of more than five, you know, very, very challenging to try and uh, address these. But we, we are doing our best to try and identify where there is dense situations and where things are dense, can we construct another shelter on the plot? Can we extend that shelter? Can we identify more land where, where additional shelters can be can be uh, constructed and, and ease the density at household level? Um, supporting health infrastructure. There's very limited health infrastructure in a lot of these settlements. Um, what we endorse is integration. Um, our mantra in UNHCR is not the construction of camps. It's, it's camps as a last resort, which is probably contrary to some of the images that people would have of, of, of refugee settlements. But we encourage integration and 
um, strengthening host country facilities, health facilities. So assessing the capacity of existing health facilities and then um, working with health colleagues on what's required and constructing additional health facilities to support uh, quarantine and um, health service for COVID patients. These, these are some of the, the key concerns that are keeping me busy at the moment. Right, and the other thing that would strike John is is that at, at a time like this, and as as you're well aware, all of us in what you might call the first world, or realistically, certainly, relatively speaking, the wealthy world, everybody is affected, and and huge numbers of people affected financially, uh, out of work, places closed down, what have you. In that environment, has the the flow of aid that traditionally goes from the wealthier part of the world far work in the developing world. Has that dried up and is is that a concern in the UN? Well, I mean, I couldn't tell you whether that has dried up, but I mean, COVID-19, as we have gone through the figures earlier, is certainly adding another dimension to what's required. I mean, if COVID is diverting funds from already humanitarian response plans, we have a problem. Look, I mean, you've touched on it. Where The world is, is entering... Uh, probably the biggest global uh, uh, slowdown since the Second World War. That that's going to have a huge effect on on low income uh, developing countries. Um, you know, uh, as the global economy shrinks, uh, people will be less inclined to to contribute to to response plans and put their hands in their pockets to to support the developing world. Um, the um, the uh, uh, economic impact report, the IMF uh, World Economic Outlook, says that you know for the first time this century in 2020, we're going to probably face a rise in in the total number of global poor. Um, again, the numbers are staggering. They're, they're, they're talking a rise of you know uh, um, uh, extremely poor people from 640 million to 690 million. But the the, the point is, it's the first time this century that there has been an increase. So there is a big risk um, of, you know, um, of reversal of gains that have been made in the last two decades. Um, again, we touched on the youth. You know, the youth are the future. And investing in the youth, um, as happened in some Asian countries that led to a boom in economies, is what Africa needs. It doesn't need us to pull back on the purse strings now. It needs a further investment to, to provide um, primary health care, uh, education, uh, primary education, technical education to those uh, millions of young people in the African countries so their economies can rise. It is primarily about the economy and making sure that we keep the economy in these African countries going or else we, we will face more challenges. And John, your own work, as I said, your, your title is Senior Emergency Shelter Officer. Um, typically, you, you go out in the field. Do you, for example, get a call saying, we have a developing situation here with refugees and they're going to need shelters constructed or how exactly does that work with you? Yeah, I mean, there, there is a system in place, uh, Mick, when when a particular uh, crisis occurs, uh, you would move to, to a level three emergency. So there's a series of steps where, where a particular crisis, a particular country goes from level one to level three. When that happens, there's a whole series of protocols that, that imply that the operation is not able to um, 
um, address and deal significantly with the scale of the crisis. Would these be host countries like for typically next door neighbours to the countries that people are fleeing from? It, it could be and it, it can get complicated Mick when you're talking about a situation, a crisis and a country but it's usually uh, the UNHCR office uh, responding to a particular crisis. The, the situation through uh, the UN system uh, gets raised to a level three emergency. And in that instance, there is a call for additional support. So that's usually when we get called in to provide additional support, additional technical support in my instance to the operation. And when you say additional technical support, is that in building um, or, or supervising the building of extra shelters where there are settlements? No, that's it in a nutshell, yeah. It's it's shelter and settlement. So it's, it's emergency uh, uh, um, site planning. So settlement planning, uh, how, how best do we lay out a settlement? Um, when uh, a host government offers a new site for refugees, uh, is that site suitable? Um, in, we'd have to look at the topography. We have to look at the, the risks and the hazards, the usable land area, come up with a, a settlement design and, and implement that, that design. Um, it could be an urban context um, where, where people have been displaced into an urban context. So in that instance, it's looking at developing a strategy to provide the best shelter support for that particular displaced people. Um, rental arrangements, assessments of the, of the housing stock in a particular location. Um, and then down to, to the type of shelter solution. Now, um, in, in this COVID-19 response, uh, obviously the less reliant we are on, on, on global pipelines, the better. So looking at local solutions, is there local building materials available? Market research, what materials are available? What's the capacity of the displaced population to build their own shelters? Um, what's the profile of the displaced people? Are there how many vulnerable people there? How many of those people do we need to build for? How many can build for themselves? A big part of it too is cash. And, and cash is a huge part of the response for COVID-19. As we said, um, we need to prop up these economies as best as possible, where people are not allowed um, go to daily work, not allowed go out to work, where markets are suffering because of closed downs. So uh, distribution uh, of, of, of relief through cash-based interventions is a key part of what we do over. And John, I know myself that you, you, you might leave your home in France and head off to far-flung corner for weeks, I think sometimes might go into months, on end to oversee a lot of this work. But in the current environment, and particularly in response to COVID-19, do you envisage a scenario where you're going to have to go out to these settlements while the virus is still alive, effectively? Well, you've touched on another uh, um, serious issue there, Mick. I mean... Um, the the restrictions, the international travel restrictions that have been placed on 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 um, uh, world populations on all of us, uh, is hugely affecting our ability to respond. I mean, we're we've been teleworking now for eight weeks here from home. We rely so much on our national staff, on our staff who are in our, our various operations to support. But again. A uh, vast majority of those national staff are on lockdown because of uh, restrictions in their own respective countries. So the the ability to move at the moment is, is uh, hugely problematic. So I can't imagine we'll be getting a call to deploy any time in the near future because we simply won't be able to get there. Um, I'm amazed at how our ability to telework has, has uh, escalated so quickly. I mean, 
uh, I really do think we're we're living the future with with this with this teleworking. Yeah, but again, going back to pre-COVID nineteen and the requirement for you to go out in the field so often, were that to arise prior to the discovery, as we're all waiting for, of a vaccine or some uh, some uh, proper treatment, I- I- is it possible or likely that um, you'll have to do that again? That's the million-dollar question. Of course, we'll have to do it again, and, and we, we look forward to being able to move again. But for now, um, international travel is restricted. We've, we've tried as best as possible to get all our people back. We still have one or two people out in the field who haven't been able to get back. But but they are generally uh, locked down in in their accommodation in, in respective countries. So we, we look forward to that day. When it's going to happen, it's hard to say, Mick. I mean, it's probably going to be another three or four months before we can move again. Um, I mean, looking back at my my last deployment, it was um, supporting the 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 Northwest Syria response um, cross border out of Gaziantep. I mean, it's it's fascinating because I, I was sitting in my, my hotel room there in Gaziantep and I was listening to your interview with uh, Norma Costello um, about her work in Syria. Um, as as the, the conflict was unfolding um, about 20 kilometres up the road. I mean, you look at the situation there in northwest Syria. I mean, there's a, an estimated population there of about 4.2 million people. You know, over 50% of those people have been displaced. So there's like... 60% of those people are what we call internally displaced persons, IDPs. That means they've had to flee their homes because of the fighting. We're not able to access that area. We're, you're, you're not allowed cross the border. So all of the aid we were providing was um, up as far as border crossing points, and then it was handed over to national NGOs and, and national partners to carry it out for us. So working remotely is not new to us. Um, it's something we're used to. The challenge is monitoring how that's being uh, distributed, how 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 uh, distributions are being done, how assessments are being done, how the materials are being handled, how technical standards are being uh, adhered to. And what we do is we develop remote monitoring mechanisms to try and manage this. So remote working is not new to us. It presents a huge challenge because of the scale of it, um, but it requires us to be more um, intelligent and innovative on how we provide technical support to the various operations. This is fascinating. All right, John. Um, tell me finally, how does a fella from Douglas and Cork City end up in Geneva heading off to um, the likes of Northwest Syria, as you said, in some, some of the most dangerous places in the world? How did you end up there, John? Uh, again, um, a road less travelled, I suppose, Mick. But, um, you know... Uh, I'm a big believer in opportunities. I mean, um, I qualified as a quantity surveyor, uh, construction uh, economics out of out of Bolton Street in Dublin, and and as you know yourself, in the late '80s, there there wasn't too many uh, jobs going around in in Cork or Dublin. So, as a young lad, we had to go to London, and then far away fields kept beckoning, and and onwards to Australia, um, and it. It was while coming back through Australia, traveling through Southeast Asia, that I, I kind of first had an inkling to do something for those that are, are less socially advantaged, uh, having witnessed um, quite a bit of poverty on those travels on the way back. So I tried to apply to every agency under the book, and it, it took 
uh, a lot of time and effort to, to try and get the first start in this uh, humanitarian world. Um, and then, um, by chance, uh, I met with Edith Wilkins, who, who runs the Edith Wilkins Street Children Foundation. And Edith just happened to say that um, they were looking for an engineer to build a school up in um, Darjeeling in India. And sure, there you go. I grabbed the opportunity. And the next week I was on a plane to, uh, to Darjeeling with, uh, with Edith. And I, I ended up in, in uh, India and Calcutta doing construction work for two years. After that, then, uh, back for more studies, as you do. And um, I wanted to try and align my, my primary qualifications with, with, with a, a career in this uh, humanitarian reconstruction world. So I did a master's in post-disaster mitigation and reconstruction. Um, and then the, the Asian tsunami happened. And since then, I've been working in this field. Great stuff. And I think also you met your, your wife out in Calcutta, if I'm right, John, her being from Leitrim. Tis a long way from Calcutta you were reared. Tis a very long way from Calcutta. I was reared and it's an even longer way from Calcutta that she was reared. But um, yeah, I mean, uh, I was up in Kalampong building a school for the nuns and I, I got a phone call to say that there was uh, a group of nurses over from Galway helping out Jack Prager on the streets and that there was a a bit of a shindig going on and it might be worth a trip down to Calcutta. And uh, yeah, so I, I jumped on the, the Darjeeling night train, got down to uh, Calcutta and um, sure we had a great St. Patrick's Day. The locals didn't know what to make of it. Um, the, a bunch of us marching up and down Souther Street with the, uh, a local band uh, <laughs> playing some sort of a, a, a marching tune up and down the road. But um yeah, I met I met Sinead there, uh, and um, the rest is history, man. Very good, John. Um, have to say, thank you very much for joining us today, and good luck with your work. Because I, I have to say as well, it's very important work that the rest of us take for granted, and we we um, we live very comfortable lives over here in comparison with what's going on in the developing world. And more than anything. Stay safe over the coming months and years. I think that's the most important thing of all. John Wayne, thank you very much for joining us today. More than welcome, Mick. Thanks for having me. God bless. Uh, I'd also like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon, and thank you for tuning in. You can listen to the podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, all the usual platforms. And you can let me know what you think at mick.clifford.examiner.ie or on the Twitter at at MickCliff. See you soon and staying by the wall. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.